Wonderful. Well, it's great to, uh, great to be with you guys. And uh, I thought maybe I'd just introduce myself by showing you a photo of my wife and kids. So uh, here they are. And uh, just recently, uh, I told uh, a woman who uh, we'd met in West London, I told her that my wife, Julia, and I, that we've got four daughters. She said, oh, she said, that'll be pricey. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She said, well, did you know that the average cost of a wedding in the UK is now £15,000? She says, factoring in inflation, she says. <laughs> factoring in inflation, that means you're probably going to have to stump up 70,000 quid to marry them all off. I said, I haven't got 70,000 quid. She said, well, she said, you're going to have to rob a bank. <laughs> I said, I can't rob a bank. I'm a Christian. She said, oh, how very inconvenient. <laughs> Anyway, we then actually had a really good conversation because I was able to tell her that when I did put my trust in Christ, it was actually the most fantastic, the most brilliant experience. And I began to tell her about some of the benefits that I received when I did put my trust in Christ. And this morning, I'd just like to take a few minutes to look at those benefits. In fact, I'd like to look at I may, at some of the fringe benefits that you and I receive when we share the good news about Jesus with other people. Now, obviously, you and I, we don't share the good news about Jesus with other people for our benefit, but it just so happens that there actually are some fringe benefits for us when we do. And so just, just for this morning, just for this morning, I want to focus on those incidental fringe benefits that we receive. So, the more that we focus on unconvinced, on unreached people, let's look at five benefits. Number one, there'll be more joy in our lives. I was talking to uh, a woman in our church, she's called Heather, and uh, Heather's friends with these two sisters called Sarah and Anna. Now, neither Sarah nor Anna, neither of them would have called themselves Christians but Heather invites both these girls along to um, our Alpha launch party. Where we have this party where we're introducing the Alpha course and these two uh, get invited along. So they've had the invitation, that's the night before. Following morning, Sarah, she's the older of the two sisters, she's um, a trainee lawyer. And the following morning, first thing, her first responsibility is she's had some legal documents that she's kept in her flat overnight and she has to, she's been told by her boss she's got to take these documents to the courthouse. Um, now, on the one hand, you could say this is really pretty straightforward. It's literally moving some bits of paper from A to B. On the other hand, Sarah's boss has explained this particular trial can't start until those documents have arrived at the courthouse. So Sarah thinks to herself, okay, um, don't panic. Um, all I will do is I will just set two alarms. Um, I'll set my alarms earlier than I normally would. And uh, I'll, uh, she actually arranges for her friend to phone her uh, just in case her two alarms fail. 
And anyway, it's all okay. She gets up on time and she gets to the end of her road and so she's there um, and she turns the corner. She walks towards the bus stop. As she's walking towards the bus stop, her heart sinks because the council have coned off the entire bus lane and there's a sign-up saying they're replacing the Victorian sewers. There won't be any buses running on the main road today. She thinks, don't panic, don't panic. I will simply walk to the underground train station. So she walks to the underground train station. When she gets there, she finds that the gates are locked, that there's a padlock on the gates, and there's a sign-up saying, London Underground regrets to inform you that the Northern Line is part suspended today. She thinks, don't panic. Um, I will simply walk to the Overland train station. Quite a long uh, walk. So she walks all the way to the Overland train station. When she arrives there, again, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she joins the end of the queue, and she has to queue through the ticket barrier. She then has to queue all the way down the steps, still queuing. Even when she's on the platform, she has to queue from the back of the platform. As the trains are arriving, she's getting closer and closer to the front of the platform until eventually she is at the front of the platform. She's definitely going to catch the next train, but she looks at when the next train's due to arrive and she thinks, I don't think a train arriving here at that time is going to get these documents to the courthouse before the advertised start of the trial and she starts to get really worried. And at that moment, she thinks to herself, what would my Christian friend Heather do if Heather was in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult before, but she thinks, do you know what? I'm going to do that. So not out loud, but she closes her eyes on the platform and she starts to pray. She prays, hello, God, um, it's me, uh, Sarah. I uh, guess you knew that. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I would be really, really grateful uh, if somehow uh, you could uh, get these bits of paper that I'm holding right now uh, to the courthouse uh, before the advertised start of the trial, uh, that I'd be really, really grateful. Right now, I can't quite see how you would manage that, but I'd be really grateful if you did. So, uh, thank you very much. Um, Yours sincerely, um, <laughs> Amen, Sarah, she prays. She opens her eyes. And the man who is standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. <laughs> the man who she's supposed to give the bits of paper to at the courthouse is standing next to her on the platform. And she's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. She just... <laughs> hands them over. The barrister standing on the platform gets given these bits of paper, looks at the case listed on the front, thinks, immediately recognises what this is and says, thank you so much. I'm really very impressed. Now I can prepare on the train. This is really rather good. What a marvellous service. 
This is really very impressive. Now I can prepare on the train. Thank you so much. Do pass on my thanks to the partners of your firm. Thank you very much indeed. So anyway, the train arrives. The barrister gets on the train. You're looking at his notes on the way. And Sarah's left thinking, now come on. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what, what are the chances? What, what are the chances? Hang on. What are the chances that the first time that I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that at that moment, the person living on the planet who could most easily have solved my problem at that moment would, by chance, be standing right next to me at that moment? Well, you might not be surprised to hear that the following Wednesday, Sarah and actually her sister Anna, they actually turned up at our Alpha launch party and Sarah and Anna, they came along each Wednesday, which is when I met them on Wednesday nights and then they came along uh, at the end of the course on the weekend away where we looked at who is the Holy Spirit. How can you experience God today? And so they came along to that as well. And at that weekend, both Sarah and Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And then subsequent to that, actually both Sarah and Anna, some months later, they were both baptized at our church. And then sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both actually uh, married uh, young men in our church. They didn't marry the same young man. <laughs> that would be a really bizarre end to the story, wouldn't it? No, that, that didn't happen. They married different young men. But I was so thrilled by what happened I went back to Heather remember Heather at the start of the story she was the young woman in our church who was friends with these two sisters and I said hey it's amazing what happened to Sarah and Anna and what she said in reply was so memorable that I wrote it down she said the more that I prayed for Sarah to know Christ I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life she said, praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on unconvinced people has reminded me that all of my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact that I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. She said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1:27 says that Christ in you is the hope of of glory. And this is such an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you, how you and Christ are now part of the same team. Can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? You see, you are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. You see, the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in education and no Christians in healthcare and no Christians in business, no Christians in sport, no Christians in further education. The devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in the media, no Christians in business. The devil would be delighted if all Christians were to live in cosy 
Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows that in John chapter 17, Jesus did not pray, oh, Father, please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No. The devil knows that in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace or whatever you're doing tomorrow morning, when you walk in that room, Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Benefit number two. We will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our uh, children, she comes home from school one time and uh, in her bag, you know, you have to go through their bag, in her bag she's got this invitation, this letter. It's an invitation to a multicultural fundraising evening at the primary school hall. So at this event, I get talking to a man, a dad, another dad, and he is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. Because it was a multicultural... Yeah, you see? Multi, yeah. So, when I look at... First time I ever see this guy, I look at him in this amazing get-up, and I say, wow, I say, where are you from? And he said, Iraq. Like he really was from Iraq. Um, so, we had a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. And anyway, they then followed a whole hour of multicultural dancing. So, we're dancing around the school hall like this for a whole hour. This, this is my multicultural dancing. So, we're dancing around like this. And then, about an hour later, I bump into him a second time. And I ask him, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? He doesn't answer the question. What he does is he silently, kind of furtively, secretly beckons me over towards the bar. So he walks off towards the bar, like this. I, I kind of follow him towards the bar. He gets to the bar. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear. He says, I, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. I check that the coast is clear. I say, so have I. He said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, well, yes, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, well, yes, we have. He said, well, why don't you come over with your wife and kids And my wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over at 3 p.m. on Saturday and we will have dinner. Okay, so that was the invitation, yeah? The following Saturday, when we're due to go, um, on that particular Saturday morning, I am placed in sole charge of our four children, yeah? And this, what I normally do is take them swimming family splash. This is a common dad thing. Yeah, take him swimming, yeah? Right, so take him swimming. Now, the thing is, I'm all right with the actual swimming when they're all in the pool, yeah? But what I find hard is the changing room routine. Because these little girls, they've got quite long hair. 
So you first of all got the shampooing of the hair, and then you've got the combing of the hair, then you're brushing of the hair, then you've got the blow dry. I haven't got any hair. This is all quite a big palaver for me. <laughs> so the point is, it, it just takes me a long time. Yeah? So we're running late. So we're, we're out the swimming pool, uh, none of them drowned, and we're, we're out the swimming pool, but we are running late. So I get home, and I'm looking at the time, I'm thinking, no, I don't think I've got enough time to now go back in the car, go out, buy some lunch from Tesco's Express, come back, prepare all the lunch, have lunch, tidy it all away, and then get back in the car and get over to Salas Park by three. So what I say to my wife and kids is this, let's all go to McDonald's. And the kids go, yay, Daddy McDonald's, great call, great call, thank you, Dad. So we go to McDonald's. Now, at McDonald's, I have a Big Mac, this is relevant to the story, a, a Big Mac, large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. Okay. We arrive on time at Salas Flat, 3 o'clock. I'm feeling really pleased with myself. We've arrived on time, mission accomplished. Ring on the doorbell. Salah's wife, Mira, she's a doctor. She answers the door. She says, welcome. Welcome to our home. Let us all go through and have dinner. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what now? Because I thought the invitation was, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being an evening meal. You know, later on at some unspecified time, we will have dinner in the evening. But no, the actual words of the invitation were, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being a 3 p.m. meal, yeah? So she opens the door to the living room, quite a large room, and there's quite a large circular table that is already full of trays of food. And then she's bringing other trays from the kitchen. She explains, these are regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan that are being brought in. And as I look at the table, I can see there is only one chair. And then she explains that as the guest of honor, <laughs> I am to sit in the chair. And that nobody else will start to eat until I have started eating. So I sit in my chair. And I feel like a king. There's various people standing around. And, and I'm there in my chair. But then I think of my Big Mac and my large fries, and my large strawberry milkshake. I am already full of Ronald McDonald. And then I think of that moment when Jesus tells his followers, eat whatever is set before you. <laughs> and I remember how when I first became a Christian, I promised that I would obey every command that Jesus made. And so I can tell you, at the end of this meal, I have never felt so bloated in all my life. I can feel myself physically expanding inside Salah's flat. And towards the end, I was kind of rolling around, sort of uh, in a kind of inebriated state inside Salah's flat, which is a bit of a shame because whilst I was in this state, Salah was describing to me something that was really quite important. He was telling me all about his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that... He has a spiritual void in his life. Salah is asking me, can I help? I can tell you, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. 
You know, at the end of this visit, as we got up to leave, well, actually, it was quite hard for me to get up to leave, um, I was sort of leaning against the wall in the corridor. But I'll never forget what he said. He said, um, listen, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. Now, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening, but God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually searching. At the gym, I needed to go to the gym after this episode, um, at the gym, I got talking to this mate of mine called Chris. First thing Chris says to me, he says, what have you been up to this week? I said, well, um, Chris, um, preparing a talk to help Christians uh, reach unconvinced uh, seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? I said, yeah, sure. He said, tell them not to say, the good book says this and the good book says that. He says, because people like me, Adrian, he says, people like me, Adrian, are cynical. Cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are cynical about religion, but most people I meet, Chris, are positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but most people I meet, Chris, they actually have quite a high opinion of Jesus of Nazareth as a person, of Jesus as an individual. I said, the great thing is, Chris, that what is on offer is not religion. What's on offer is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, um, do you believe in God? He said, well, he said, that depends. I said, on what? He said, on where I am. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when I get on my bicycle and I cycle out of London, I get out into the Surrey countryside and I can see the grass and the hills and the trees all around me. I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes but I have absolutely no idea <laughs> what it is. And again, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ. And God is on your side. And the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. We are promised that when we do speak up on his behalf, God is going to back us up and we'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Okay, third benefit, we will see ourselves making a difference. Now you love this. You love it when the God of the Bible, the God who is really there, God's love comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. What a thrilling idea. God comes, the love of God comes through you into somebody else's life. You see, it's as we go that Jesus says, 
I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. Jesus said, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. The Apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Jesus said of his own mission, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So we need to remember that Jesus made a conscious, deliberate decision to hang out with unbelieving people. His reputation at the time we know was something like this. Oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody's heard of him. Jesus from Capernaum. Yeah, here's what we've heard about him. He's, he's a glutton. Jesus, yeah, he's a, he's a winebibber. He, he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And people said that about Jesus because, yes, it's true, Jesus did make a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as we even start praying for that sceptical person, we are pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We are lining ourselves up with the same mission that Jesus lined himself up with. And when we do that, we find that all the resources of heaven swing in behind us And God himself is cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers here in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, I found once you become a Christian, it's relatively easy to grasp that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. But what really is a delicious, sumptuous, marvelous thought is to think, in the same way that God the Father sent Jesus the Son, God is now sending you into your world. Wow. Jesus says as much when we overhear him praying for you. This is Jesus praying to his Father about you. John 17, verse 18, Jesus says, As you have sent me into the world, Father, I have sent them into the world. In the same way. And to the same extent that the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending you and me into our world of our neighbours, our friends, our family, the people we work with, the people we hang out with, our circle, our circle of influence, those people we know who don't know Christ yet. As much as the Father was with Jesus, the Bible says, the Father is now with you. Wonderful. Okay, fourth benefit, folks you'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon verse 6 says it's actually through being active in sharing our faith that you and I get a fuller understanding of every good thing that we do have in Christ. We get a better understanding of how great our inheritance is. For example, here's a story about a couple in our church. They're called Richard and Jill. And Richard and Jill um, were active in sharing their faith with this couple called Paul and Helena Hanley. This is an old photo of Paul and Helena. When this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena would have called themselves Christians. Paul was, at that time, a 35-year-old atheist. He was an insurance broker working in the city of London. He was living in Surrey in a place called Caterham. He was a commuter. And his wife, Helena, she works at East Surrey Hospital. It's a big hospital in a place called Red Hill in Surrey. And they're married, they have got three lovely sons, they live in a nice house in a place called Caterham, 
in Surrey. Paul is one of those people that you sometimes come across in life, one of those people who's quite strongly, kind of outspokenly opposed to uh, Christianity. Now, today, Paul is a Christian. Helen is a Christian. And they're both Christians, and they actually uh, lead a church. Uh, Paul is the pastor of a church. This is the second church they've led. This one's in Cornwall. And uh, if you are anything like me, when you hear that sort of thing, you wonder, how, how does that happen? How do you go from being a 35-year-old atheist to becoming a Christian? I mean, how does that happen? Folks, here's what happened. One afternoon in Catrum, in Surrey, where they live, Paul and Helena go for a walk in the park on a Saturday afternoon. As they're walking along the path, they see, away to the left, this couple from our church, Richard and Jill, who are sitting on the grass. Paul immediately recognizes, oh no, that's the Christian couple. Because you see, remember I told you that Paul's wife Helena is a nurse at the East Surrey Hospital. Jill, from our church, sitting on the grass with Richard, her husband, she's a nurse at the East Surrey Hospital. These two are colleagues, they're friends from work. And what's happened is that Jill from our church, she's been active in sharing her faith with Helena. Helena's interested in all this Christian stuff. She's hearing it and she's asking some questions to Jill. Jill's been answering the questions. These two have struck up a bit of a rapport. Paul is aware. This is the couple. This is the couple. So what Paul decides to do as he's walking along is to blank them. So he literally focuses straight on ahead and tries to pretend that he hasn't seen them and walks along like this. But the problem with doing that is there's been too much eye contact. There's been too much eye contact. So what Paul has to do is he stops mid-track and he has to say, oh, <laughs> almost walked straight by you. It's great to see you. How are you doing, Paul says. But as he walks over, Richard and Jill are sitting on the grass having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. So the social rules of Surrey dictate that they have to sit down and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And Paul's thinking, oh, I'm, I'm stuck with the Christians. How did this happen? But then Paul thinks, do you know what? Seeing as I am stuck with the Christians, I'll just have some fun with them. You know, if they do bring up the conversation of whatever it is they talk about, you know, God and Jesus and all that stuff, I'll just be able to point out the factual errors, the logical inconsistencies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul thinks. And wouldn't you just know, within the first two minutes, Paul's wife Helena asked Jill from our church a question about her faith. She answers the question. And then for the next hour and a half, the four of them have this full-on, no-holds-barred discussion about God and Jesus and such things. And at the end of the hour and a half conversation, as Paul and Helena are walking back to the car, holding the empty picnic boxes, Paul says, I remember thinking to myself, I knew that it would be easy to win the conversation as he sees it, to win the conversation against the Christians. But Paul remembers thinking, do you know, it was even easier than I thought it would be. So he puts the picnic boxes in the boot of the car. He closes the boot of the car. He says, I walked to the driver's seat. I sat in the driver's seat. I put my key in the ignition and then I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, 
You know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry, darling, I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much. Well, there then followed a full and frank exchange of views between the married couple. And when that kind of had died down a bit, uh, Paul drives home. All the way home, he's thinking, where did that come from? So he pulls up on the gravel drive. And then he just feels this kind of compelling urge to go into his study. He gets out a pad of blank paper and a pen and just starts writing down everything that he can think of that he's ever done wrong in his life. And when I met Paul, I asked him about this, and he said, it was just like being sick. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. He said, I went back into that room, and I sat there every day writing a list for three days. I said, why did it take you three days? He said, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. (laughs) Anyway, you guys already know the end of the story, because I told you at the start that Paul and Helen had become Christians. In fact, I even told you that they subsequently become uh, the pastor, the leaders of a church. In fact, they're now leading this other church as well. So the first time that I ever met Paul and Helena was on a Sunday morning. Yeah? So I was on the welcome team. So I was standing out there um, on the door and I can see this couple walking up towards me with their three sons and I'm thinking, I don't think I recognize these folks. So I introduce myself, they introduce themselves. I say, oh, well, do you know anyone here? Oh, we know Richard and Jill. Oh, I know Richard and Jill, I say. I say, well, would you mind me asking you, is this your first Sunday here at church with us this morning? Yeah, Paul says, this is our first Sunday at any church. We've just become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. Anyway, um, so I then say to Paul, well, would you mind me asking, how did that happen? He then tells me the story that I just told you. And as you can imagine, towards the end of the story, I am absolutely fascinated to ask Paul Hanley, Paul, what was it that Richard and Jill said to you that afternoon in the park, Paul, that made you want to firstly confess about the credit card bill, Secondly, spend three days in your study writing down a list of everything that you've ever done wrong. Thirdly, what was it, Paul, that they said to you that made you want to leave atheism at the age of 35 and become a Christian? Paul, I ask him, what did they say? And he said, oh, uh, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, well, what was it then? He said, oh, he said, "Um, it was them. It was something about them. Paul would now say it was Christ in them. Do you know what the funny thing is for me looking back on this conversation? At this point, as I'm talking to Paul, just inside the front door of the church, Paul Hanley has been at our church at this point for 10 minutes. Yeah. Eight years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And now, as I told you, he's leading this other church in a place called Camborne in Cornwall. Paul found out that summer that the real Jesus, who really is alive, was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire to be pure, a desire to be clean. Paul wanted to feel clean. He'd never felt this desire before. He wanted to feel washed. He wanted to feel renewed. 
He'd never had this craving before. Paul and Helena found out there's more to life than being happy. There's more to life than being married. There's more to life than being happily married with kids. They found there's a real God. I mean, there actually is a real God. I mean, there is a God who really loves you. But just think with me for a moment about that whole story from Richard and Jill's point of view. If Jill were here this morning in Teesside, if Jill had the microphone, she would say, hey, Philemon, verse 6, is true of me. Through being active in sharing my faith with my friend Helena, I now have a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Okay, fifth and final benefit this morning, folks. We will become more like Jesus. How so? Well, actually, lots of ways. But one way is that there were lots of ways whereby Jesus drew people to God. One of the main ways that Jesus drew people to God was by telling stories. The Bible calls them parables. So, as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be surprised if you get more and more pleasure out of storytelling. People love to listen to Jesus' stories. The common people heard him gladly, the Bible says. Now, somebody could hear that this morning and say, yeah, I understand that. I understand the importance, the value of storytelling. Somebody could say, here's the thing. Someone might say, I don't really have a story. You know, somebody could say, well, I was brought up in a Christian home. My parents were Christians. I'm going to church since I was very small. Somebody could say, you know, I was only really eight years old when I became a Christian, so I don't really have like a dramatic before and after story about becoming a Christian because I was only eight years old. And, you know, there are people who do have a very dramatic before and after story. I don't know about you, but I find often Christians from America (laughs) will have a very dramatic before story. And it might go something like this. Dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night in prison, she. <laughs> now, you can't say that. Maybe you can't say that because the truth is you were brought up in a Christian home, you were only eight years old. So before you became a Christian, you were attending a Church of England primary school. Now, my wife, Julia, it just so happens, she's the most effective personal evangelist that I know. So Julia has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could very easily say, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. (laughs) And it's when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And it was about that stage in my life where I first discovered voodoo. (laughs) Is that what she says? No, that's not what she says. Because the truth is that Julia... My wife did not grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. 
and about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. So what is her 45-second story? This is what she says. As a child, I worried a lot, even though really I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible. I became a Christian age 12, and I was baptized age 13. When I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever, and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried, but I felt God's presence, and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. Folks, one day there will be so many people in heaven that the Bible says no one will be able to count them. There'll be too many people in heaven for anyone to ever be able to count them. We know that by that stage there'll be at least one person from every tribe and language and tongue and nation around the throne of God in heaven. That means that between today and that day, we know that millions and millions of people are going to meet Jesus and they're going to come to know him personally. Folks, you and I we get to be part of seeing that happen. We get to play our part in the most wonderful thing that will ever take place in the future history of our world. And right now we can have the time of our lives in the process. We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, we are already in the most wonderful adventure. Should we stand together? Let's sing, let's celebrate, and let's praise God.